At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello and welcome to Weird Signal, a podcast dedicated to all things eerie, weird and hauntological. I'm Sean and today joining us for the latest episode in our interview series we have Cuck Philosophy. Hi. We're going to be doing things slightly differently to how we've done the last few interviews where my uh, Cuck and myself are going to be discussing a text. We're going to be talking about Mark Fisher's essay just because up here mark fisher's essay no longer the pleasures which is his essay on joy division which you can find in the ghosts of my life writings and depression hauntology and lost futures collection uh which is put out by zero books so before we begin we could uh if you would like to just talk us through a little bit what it is uh you do and uh yeah then we can uh jump straight into the uh to the meat of the thing yeah um i basically make YouTube videos on uh, mostly continental philosophy, often through the lens of pop culture. I'm, uh, I'm also a student of philosophy, and uh, yeah, that's what I do. Yeah, and uh, as of recording, you've got about 88,000 subscribers on YouTube, which yeah. is absolutely, must be absolutely insane having so many people. Yeah, um, it happened very quickly. Yeah, what was the um, what was the tipping point for you? What was the video that kind of like made it all uh, made it all real, so to speak? It it actually was the um, Jordan Peterson doesn't understand postmodernism video. I think it was like shared around on Reddit, and that was you know Jordan Peterson was very popular in the uh, in the sort of YouTube algorithm. So that's I think that's mainly the video that that sort of kickstarted the popularity. Yes, well, it's good to know that at least indirectly some good has come out of uh, Jordan <laughs> Peterson. Yeah, uh, yeah, his um, yeah his yeah his presence continues to uh, confound and infuriate. Um, well, every thinking person really. It's it's, it's remarkable that someone that his neo Jungian nonsense has any kind has any kind of reception really. But then, that being said, maybe it isn't so remarkable after all really. But yeah. Yes. Well, without further ado, we are going to jump straight into uh, Mark Fisher's work on Joy Division. And uh, followers of this podcast will know that Mark Fisher is a frequent uh, touchstone for us at Weird Signal. Um, specifically, we tend we've tended to refer to his um, his last uh, book, his last book, well, his last um, book before he uh, died, um, The Weird and the Eerie, his wonderful little primer uh, for well, exploring weirdness and eeriness, which. Um, really did kind of really does serve as the uh the bedrock for what it is we do on this podcast uh but um you've been drawing more from uh his sort of almost you might call it the classic period of his work with uh capitalist realism mm-hmm. uh and and so on which is uh if uh, just on the if the off on off uh, on the off chance none of you have read it it's a fantastic little book which um i think it must be about 10 years old now or something like that but it's still um its diagnosis is still um, as relevant as ever for the, uh, the the situation that we find ourselves in of uh, there being no meaningful solutions being offered to the uh, the perpetual crisis, which is neoliberal capitalism. But uh, we, but why Mark Fisher really made a name for himself uh, was as uh, blogging under the name K Punk, and this essay uh, it was in fact formed of uh, I think I'm assuming a series of blog posts that um, appeared on his K-Punk blog in uh, 2005 I believe it was 
mm-hmm. which then came to be sort of like formulated and uh, made uh, came to be formulated in uh, this collection by Zero Books. So, uh, in the, or perhaps we should talk a little bit about what he actually uh, covers in this uh, essay. Yeah, um, I mean it's it's a very dense essay. Obviously, the main sort of unifying theme is joy division, but he goes into um, sort of depression generally. He goes into the sort of way in which joy division stripped out rock music's libidinal motor. He goes into um, sort of a more general cultural critique of how joy division represented UK's sort of cultural come down after the, you know, popularity of speed in the 50s and 60s um and he brings in schopenhauer as well uh it's it's a very it's a very dense work really it's uh very typical in in the best sense of Mm -hmm. um what fisher what fisher did how he does bring together without ever without ever feeling labored like um how one i remember once um reading a uh, basic sort of like a sort of like an introduction to postmodern theology by John Caputo where he would constantly have these pop cultural references that his editor had obviously just told him to throw in there which would lead to these hideous moments where he would just pause what he was saying and say in the journey of our lives we often feel lost much like the characters in the popular television program <laughs> lost while Fisher Fisher really mined um pop culture well indeed it's not even I don't even really want to call it pop culture he just mined culture and all of its mm-hmm. um all of its formulations and all of its assemblages to find those um moments of uh, critique or those um explosive moments where things just become clearer where just where a combination of all these different factors coming together and that's really what he does what he's doing with joy division where, he's, where he is um rather than just doing this kind of lazy thing of using joy division as the excuse to talk about these things he's talking about how depression and how cultural and social and economic malaise works through what they're doing and how it kind of embodies itself and makes itself real through their music yeah for sure he has a lot of there's a lot of like you know in a single refer in a single sentence you may have like three references to different you know cultural phenomena yes because it's the um because a ghost of my uh, ghost of my uh, life is a book which i have to admit i've never finished and the reason why mm. i eventually just had to put it down wasn't um uh, was it because fish were done anything wrong or anything it was simply the amount of information the amount of just cultural information that he had there was just so greater than mine that i'd have to pause every few sentences and check up check out a new band on spotify to listen to and then spend the next couple of days getting to know in order to oh, sort yeah. of understand what he was expressing and eventually i, mean, I discovered a lot of good music that way like I'm, I'm i'm very slightly too young to have like been uh like aware enough of burial when burial first happened so it's fly a fish of that like i came across him and uh-huh. uh and so on but uh but yeah so going sort of like more specifically into the actual content of this essay uh fisher begins and i'm just going to uh read it out actually because it's a wonderful uh opening line yeah he opens this essay saying if joy division matter now more than ever it is because they capture the depressed spirit of our times listen to jd now and you have the inescapable impression that the group were catatonically channeling our present their future and the thing that's interesting is that 
Mark Fisher wrote that on January the 9th, 2005. Uh, he wrote that for a full 14 years before uh, before now, before I was talking about it. So kind of the first question I really kind of want to dive deeply into is, does that statement continue to ring true 14 years later? Or has there been a substantive enough shift in things that we can't really give to Joy Division that same kind of relevance as they had then? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess sort of... Um when you look at how Mark Fisher describes Joy Division's music, I think maybe in that same page, is that they were sort of signaling this feeling of all sort of the future has already happened and all certainties are are dissolved and, and the future is foreclosed. And that seems to be pretty similar to how, you know, Frederick Jameson described the postmodern uh, cultural condition, which obviously Mark Fisher draws a lot from. And you know, it's a very common way of describing postmodernity to say that the future has already happened and you just have the sense of impending doom with you know everything being foreclosed. I feel like if anything, that sort of that notion is is even more prevalent today um, culturally but also, um, with the you know the impending doom with the coming you know uh, climate disasters that we're still not really doing anything about it's it's even more explicit I think um, and yeah you know Mark Fisher talks about how Joy Division were sort of um, writing their music in the threshold um, between the social democratic industrial capitalism of the early 20th century as they were moving into the the neoliberal, you know, informatic late capitalist age that we are still currently in. And as they were challenge channeling that future, I think I think that's a future we're definitely still in. Yes, I definitely agree with you that um it does definitely it does really feel that we are deeper into deeper in that crisis of malaise Mm -hmm. uh now in 2019 than we were in 2005 um i think that um it's curious as well to uh to think to to recognize that um fisher was writing this before the financial crisis of 2008 Mm -hmm. so he so i think this perhaps um i think this is quite an important point really because from where Fisher was writing, one can assume at least, that um, his perspective is that the, the ascendancy of neoliberal capitalism is um, can't be challenged or hasn't been cha- challenged in well, since 91, since the fall of communism, mm-hmm. that this has uh, an air of um, absolute permanence and of accelerating intensity, that there's no indication it's going to slow down. But, of course, us 11, year, 11 years after the financial crisis, we're still, uh, and we're still obviously living in the effects of it very, um, very potently. Mm-hmm. But there still hasn't been a meaningful uh, recovery um, to, what we, to, the, uh, to uh, the conditions that we enjoyed before then. That since then the um, we have had almost a double a sort of a doubling down of it really because we not only, because we don't have any kind of the uh, claim to optimism that one could have um, put forwards it, when Fisher wrote that the fact that sort of like think you know 
boom and bust is over and so on. Yeah. Because we've had the crash, we've had the bust, but we still we've plunged further into capitalist realism because um, this itself has just intensified the foreclosure of the future and the refusal to um, countenance any kind of meaningful um, restructuring of the economic order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and even you sort of, this um, this kind of cultural despair that uh, Mark Fisher describes is actually very prevalent today even in... Uh, for example, millennial humor that's very sort of, you know, depressed and self-deprecating. There's that, um, you know, joke about how the sort of argument that pro-lifers bring up and, you know, well, how would you feel if you were aborted? You know, how that argument is very weak against millennials who actually find that a, you know, a pleasant notion. So <laughs> it's it's almost like that a... Uh, kind of cultural depression that Mark Fisher talks about um, is, is, I think, very explicitly felt today. Yes, absolutely. It's, um, again, what we've seen is, rather than the financial crisis being a signal that um, this this can't stand, this can't maintain itself as it has, what we've instead have, what we've instead had is um, just the intent, the, the, almost like the blinkers sort of like being welded even more firmly over our eyes it's sort of like for the fact the precarity of the system being made obvious means that any discussion or criticism of it based on those terms of precarity has has become even more difficult uh, to conduct Mm -hmm. Uh, but I I think that at least maybe this is me being a little bit optimistic I think that we are perhaps seeing some signs towards uh, a greater awareness of the um, of the contingency of the present order, perhaps or perhaps some intimations of that. Um, but even but uh, even then, it's um, one must be you know one must beware of false hope as uh, as, mm. as well as pe- as well as uh, undue pessimism. Uh, speaking of pessimism, uh, of course, one of the uh, cent- one of the features that we've already touched on that uh, Fisher. Very, uh, discusses a great deal in this essay, uh, in both in, both in relation to Joy Division and in relation to his own life, is depression. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've already mentioned the name uh, Schopenhauer, and Schopenhauer is um, often on, is understood as you know the uh, the high priest, the pessimistic uh, outlook. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, maybe maybe you could uh, talk us through a little bit what uh, what Schopenhauer's you know, d- deal was, what what Schopenhauer was um, trying to express. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so so Schopenhauer is one of the first figures I actually got into in philosophy um, in high school, and I wrote my bachelor's thesis on Schopenhauer, and he was basically writing in in 19th century Germany, and, you know, he's known for, for having a very pessimistic outlook on life where his sort of pessimism was an inherent feature of of the world itself in in early in ghosts of my life mark fisher talks about how you know sort of the kind of cultural critique that he did was partially a way for him to um distance himself from from his depression by externalizing it onto the sort of cultural and political moment of the time 
So mm-hmm. I guess what Schopenhauer did is kind of externalize his pessimism, not onto the sort of contingent cultural or, or political moment of the time, but he externalized it onto the very kind of metaphysical substratum uh, of the world. He had this notion that what underlies the world and you know all phenomena that we experience is this metaphysical substance of the will. And the will is like an endless striving that can never reach any kind of goal or conclusion or progress or a kind of, you know, Hegelian synthesis of of contradicting elements into a higher unity. Um, That For Schopenhauer, the world is fundamentally irrational and without purpose. Um, Actually, Nietzsche, for that reason, described him as being the sort of first inexorable atheist in, in Germany because many secular thinkers would simply replace the functions of God with something else like history or science or rationality or morality. Whereas for Schopenhauer, the, there really was no solution, you know, except like ascetic resignation that the world itself is fundamentally irrational and, and things won't get better. And I, I guess that's how, the, you know, Schopenhauer's pessimism was sort of inscribed into the world itself. Yes, because he was um, our, uh, he was the first modern European philosopher. Because there was a lot of interconnectedness between the Greek world and the uh, and uh, the East. But he was the first modern mm. uh, European philosopher to explicitly draw from um, the Buddhist and uh, Vedantic uh, oh, yeah, traditions. Because yeah. uh, uh, like the first Latin translations of uh, the Vedas were published in his lifetime, and he studied them, and I, and he found in them sort of um, almost like a confirmation of his you know, of, of his metaphysical pessimism because mm-hmm. a feature that uh, does appear in a lot of uh, in the uh, in the eastern religions most especially in buddhism is the uh, you know the, the you know the first of the four noble truths is all existence is is dukkha it's is suffering it's bitterness and yeah. similarly obviously the way that one uh, achieves nirvana and escapes from this is is by developing a uh, an, an attitude of um, detachment of, of a kind of, of a compassionate detachment but detachment all the same from the snares of the world mm-hmm. and this is uh, this is a theme that you do discover you do discover in the Western religions as well that's um, that's um, the notion uh, in uh, in, Christi- in Christianity and Christian mysticism at least that um, the only changeless source of joy is God himself and therefore the soul must purify itself and the heart must purify itself by becoming enamoured solely with the deity and letting the world sort of become just um or, or rather allowing the world to show itself as just uh, as just shadows almost yeah um schopenhauer i guess is he's often sort of described as combining three elements um in the history of thought so you have plato you have kant and then you have buddhism those are sort of the three elements that uh, make up Schopenhauer. And um, yeah, and, and then one of the sort of notions that he, th- he drew from a Buddhist and also Hindu theology is, is actually a notion that Mark Fisher mentions in this essay, which is the, the veil of Maya, which is in Eastern thought sort of used to describe this, um, 
illusory veil that that keeps you from seeing the true nature of things you know as as long as you're behind this veil of maya you you still believe that you know your next desire is going to be that desire which actually fulfills you and then if you sort of go through the veil of maya and and see the true nature of the world you see that actually desire is by its very nature sort of disappointing and illusory and uh yeah uh that's something that mark fisher talks about sort of as a, a joy division sort of discover that 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 this this feeling of having to go on after every desire again and again and again is actually almost you know once you pierce that veil of maya it's something that's almost horrifying yes it's interesting that um the um i'm gonna hesitate calling him a philosopher um but uh, at least the thinker or the, or the writer who has most um stridently taken up that uh, the banner of absolute metaphysical pessimism most uh, most strikingly in the last uh, in the last few decades is uh, the horror writer thomas Ligotti, mm-hmm. who precisely um uses the medium of uh, he uses the medium of horror to try and um articulate that same tr- that, that same uh, truth that mm-hmm. the though um while for um I mean, and he's and he's drawing from the lovecraftian tradition here as well uh, as well because for lovecraft the ultimate horror cosmic horror was the dis- is the discovery of the um the insignificance of the meaninglessness of human existence and Lagotti does this as well with the um the, with um no, the punchline of his stories, almost for want of a better word, being just the um, the absolute, just sodden awfulness of being at all, and mm-hmm. the hope and the attendant hopelessness of it. And um, of course, because you mentioned already Nietzsche, because Nietzsche was obviously very, very potently influenced by Schopenhauer, mm-hmm. but he kind of, but he goes in a different direction with it because he kind of, because he does sort of bite the bullet. Uh, that Schopenhauer proposed uh, of, of, of Schopenhauer that um, there isn't inherent meaning yeah. in life, and life is struggle uh, for, for Nietzsche. It's um, will to power, as he's put it, because he denies. Because for Schopenhauer, will it is a, a metaphysical quality properly understood. It's not just that. It's not just human striving. It is mm-hmm. a character of everything. Everything is a kind of a, a rushing onwards, even if it's just into the continuation of its own existence. Mm-hmm. Well, well, for Nietzsche. Nietzsche almost takes as a challenge to set to sort of look the matter square in the face and to state, despite the meaninglessness of it all and despite the uh, the perpetuity of suffering, I will carry on all the same and I will carve things out of my own image, which is um, mm-hmm. which is why I think because it's interesting that um, in some ways Joy Division is perhaps more like an archetypal adolescent band in a way, mm-hmm. uh, but it's definitely something that. Um, uh, and at least reflecting on my own life, it's like it's, it's, it's the band you need to hear when you're 16 or 17, uh-huh. uh, in a way. And I think there's something similar of Nietzsche, because I remember when I, when I was that age, like the two big, like Joy Division and Friedrich Nietzsche, like the two most potent like presences in my in my, in my world almost. Mm-hmm. And it is and it is because there is something um, there's something alluring about the darkness. That um, that Schopenhauer and Nietzsche and Joy Division all kind of put forwards, but there is something um, conceit. There is something perhaps dangerous about it as well, of allowing 
and I, I don't mean this in strictly strictly speaking in the terms of depression as a clinical diagnosis but just uh, the, the pessimism as an outlook can be um it can lead to a certain um contemptuousness for people and things which is mm. something which is which is you know which is dangerous and is something that should be resisted which is why i think it's very easy to be against sort of like a, a 17 year old boy who's just read Nietzsche for the first time and to be very very keen on all of this mm-hmm. uh but yes um yeah, moving uh, on slightly to uh, and because uh, perhaps I'm dealing with um, again with the question of uh, depression more specifically because there's a certain um, I mean there's all, I mean there's a certain tragic quality to reading Mark Fisher talk about Ian Curtis because of course uh, Ian Curtis um, committed suicide when he was 23 and Mark Fisher committed suicide uh, at the beginning of 2000 and uh, 2017 or 2016 so there is a and Fisher mentions his own uh, struggles with depression in this essay. There's a uh, passage here where um, Fisher says, When I first heard them aged 14, it was like that moment in John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, where Suter Kane forces John Trent to read the novel, the novel, the hyperfiction, in which he is already immersed, my whole future life intensely compacted into these sound images. Ballard, Burroughs, S- Dub, Disco, gothic, antidepressants, psych wards, overdoses, slashed wrists, way too much stim to even begin to assimilate. Even they didn't understand what they were doing. How on earth could I then? And there is a very, I'm almost stepping into Thomas Ligotti territory because there was something just so potently um, devastating about reading that and knowing that um, 13 or so years after Fisher wrote that, he killed himself. Mm-hmm. Um and it's in, and um i think that's why it is so important to try and sort of like take the depressiveness um at work at work in their music uh seriously that there is a because there's an extent to which um some theory, some more radical theorists of mental health like i believe rd lang have understood for example schizophrenia as being uh, a rational reaction to the irrationality of our society and something that um, Fisher explored in Capitalist Realism and touches on the ghost of, of, our, of our life is the social aspect of depression, the fact, or the political aspect of depression that one of the reasons why we are depressed is because the social order we reside in is 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 characterized in such a way that it causes this that it co- that it does overstimulate and overwork us yeah um yeah and and there is that danger that sort of you will you know at times when you feel despair or depression or pessimism that you will sort of accept that as being just the natural condition of the world and that's that sort of depoliticization of of, of mental illness is obviously something that Mark Fisher has spent a lot of time um, arguing against. You know, Schopenhauer himself, he was he was very right wing. So, you know, you could almost say that his sort of pessimism perhaps was an effect of or perhaps a cause of perhaps it was a way of justifying you know the fact that the 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 sort of great mass of the population at his time 
for example, the peasantry and the working class were suffering greatly. And if, if you don't believe that that's something that can actually be fixed by, you know, political changes, it's very easy then to sort of fall into this metaphysical pessimism of, of well, actually suffering is, is the very condition of life itself. And, I'm, yeah. I, wish, but I was just going to say, which is exactly what Sir Jordan Peterson, of course, proposes. Oh, yeah, 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 that's a good point. Um, so I guess what Mark Fisher did with his works, and I guess what is sort of the our task today is to actually seek obviously there's always going to be sort of instances of, of suffering and despair that are just part of the human condition itself but it's it's very important politically to seek the causes of of you know obviously there's always been pessimism there's always been despair but when when you have these waves these sort of large um, almost cultural waves of, of pessimism and despair, it is very important to politicize them and, and, and try to, you know, find the causes for, for why exactly, you know, this stuff happens. Yes, uh, I absolutely agree with you there. And I think that, um, I think you very rightly made the connection between this um, extremely pessimistic um, disposition and radical right-wing politics because mm -hmm. there's because um so I've, I've already discussed it much on on the pod i don't think i've discussed it openly on the podcast but i've mentioned it publicly on twitter is that a, yeah um, a few years ago so about uh i'm quite sure when it would be about five four or five years ago i became i was when i had left university and was having to cope with all the horrors of actually having to you know, work for a living full time. Mm -hmm. One of the things that kind of went along with that was I became quite interested in Nick Land and his kind of, and uh, sort of accelerationist capitalism and uh, neo reaction and so on. And part of the reason why I became kind of fascinated with this was because although I had you know a very com you know, objectively a very comfortable sort of office job. There is still just the you know the, the inherent horror of labour in the capitalist system, and this did get to me very uh, profoundly for a while. Mm. And the outlook that uh, Nick Land has and people around him have is that is the same kind of um, pessimistic. It's the same kind of pessimism. The notion that um, the world is the way it is because this is the way that the world is. It couldn't, if it could be otherwise, it would be um, a kind of um, a kind of Leibnizian uh, gesture almost. Mm -hmm. So the all the horrors of capitalism are understood as being part of the greater evolutionary process, and it doesn't make sense to be upset by it any more than uh, it makes sense to um, uh, for the antelope to be upset upset that the lion eats it. Mm -hmm. um, which uh, and the, and. The thing is, the, the most perverse dimension of this for me was this hor like horrible worldview that I had adopted, which I'm very, very, very uh, grateful to have uh, rid myself of. There was something comforting about the thought that um, although I suffer, I suffer because suffering is what the name of the game is. Mm -hmm. And somehow almost through accepting that, it, um, it, 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 it redeems you. And um, yes, and there's some, and that is something 
and then I think something that can go with it, and this is why I mentioned previously the way that a pessimistic outlook, and again specifically a, pessim- a philosophically pessimistic outlook, not a not um, clinical depression as a me- as a medical diagnosis, but a pessimistic philosophical outlook, mm-hmm. can lead to a certain callousness. I think there's actually something that. Um, uh, a, co- a concept that the YouTuber ContraPoints, uh, ContraPoints, come on the show if you're listening, we love you. Um, but uh, she mentioned in their video in Incels, there's a notion of a, a masochistic epistemology where, mm. where, where again, so where the interpretation of the world, which is the bleakest, is the most truthful. And something that I remember thinking afterwards is the reverse is true. One can have a sadistic epistemology as well, one where the interpretation of events, which is the, which is just the cruelest, the one that that um, most goes out of its way to justify why um, the modern global economy is still essentially based on indentured labour and so on. Uh, a, a, a well, a, a, an epistemology that justifies all the horror and the cruelty in it, and takes. And this is why it's why it's sadistic, and kind of can take a glee in that as well. Mm-hmm. Which obviously isn't something we're saying. Mark Fisher had. Rather the opposite. Fisher was trying, like we said, Fisher was understood that this has a political dimension to it. There's a political reason why we feel like this, and that is why the real question, the real task, is understanding the contingency of this and the fact that it can be made other to how it is. Yeah, and I guess that's you know the part of why I found Schopenhauer so appealing. You know, in high school. Uh, obviously many people deal with a lot of negative emotions during high school there's something very cathartic about the notion of I feel bad but actually the reason I feel bad is not through any fault of my own um, but because this is sort of just the necessary condition of the world and it's that same process of externalization that can be used either for political critique or critique you know of life itself and you know and and one could you know also look at um reasons for why schopenhauer's philosophy spread at his time as well um it's actually it's interesting how often when we think of schopenhauer today we have this image of him as being very unpopular and an outcast and a recluse, which is actually an image he sort of fostered partially himself. But the thing is that during his time, his philosophy was one of the biggest in Germany, and there and he gave rise to this whole range of of pessimistic philosophers. And so, like in nineteenth century Germany, this this kind of pessimism was part of the very zeitgeist of of that uh, of that time period and so it's important to sort of look for you know contingent causes for that so for example in 1873 you had an economic crash and then an ensuing great depression after that you had just in general there was this whole debate um, during that century of, of what was called a social question, namely how to alleviate the suffering of the majority of, of, of the people in the country. And I guess once again, sort of it's very easy to resign yourself from any kind of politicization and say, 
there's no point in changing things because the reason that so many people are suffering is because that's just the very condition that that we're in and and actually if things did improve and people had more time to sort of rest and and stay away from you know manual labor that they would only sort of grow more miserably miserable because then they would see they would have more time to realize just how meaningless everything is um so i guess yeah there's again this contrast of externalizing your internal feelings onto po politics on the one hand and then onto the very nature of the world on the other and i guess Mark Fisher was doing the former and Schopenhauer was more doing the latter. Hmm. Do you think um, how when it comes to the question of how we embark on a social critique, how useful do you think it is to begin from this um, pessimistic or depressive outlook? Because this is I think this is um, the territory perhaps we stray into here is um, the question of because um, if critique is purely diagnostic it's purely just understanding why it is things are as awful as they are it can have a an air of toothlessness to it mm -hmm. um, well I guess for a lot of people that's kind of just a necessary starting point you know a lot of people feel despair and they and they feel depressed and then they from that starting point start to look for causes you know why do i feel this way and and of course mark fisher talked a lot about you know this is not just a sort of you know matter of of individual significance where i will try to overcome my own feelings of of despair by trying to find external causes for those feelings this is something that has been deliberately sort of cultivated the sense of this sense of 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 individual despair that has no external causes has been you know by the neoliberal elite very actively cultivated that this is not a political issue that um this is just something that we individually have to deal with and i think sort of the significance of starting from your feelings of despair is that you're able to then sort of pierce through that neoliberal outlook of actually this is your you know just your individual feelings and and see that actually these psychological questions of how you feel are always entangled with the wider social questions so i guess that's how you would you know use depression as a starting point you start from your individual feelings and then you go on into wider and larger scale questions of how are we collectively made to feel this way yes because i think um just reflecting on um how at least it appears to be um in in britain is mm -hmm there's simultaneously this um, um, 
an effort to destigmatize mental health, which obviously in and of itself is a very valuable thing to do because mm-hmm. um, it, because that, that's where a lot of the destructiveness of mental health issues comes from the fact that people feel like they can't that they're trapped in it and they can't treat it as they can uh, physical health um, is- issues but there's an extent to which if we understand this politically as we ought to um, it becomes obvious that there's an extent to which the destigmatization of mental illness is that is almost an attempt to normalize it as a condition to be in mm-hmm. That uh, I get uh, that we feel this way because well, well, everybody feels this way sometimes. So don't try, don't worry about it too much. Rather than pushing forward to the next question, which is, but what? Why have we been made to feel this way when we know this? There are there have been points, even in living memory, when this wasn't the case, where things were other than how they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose, in a way. It, the question almost becomes of what is the relationship between depression and hope and which is something which is something i certainly don't feel qualified to uh, propose any kind of um, serious answer to but um maybe inherent in the recognition of the um, the pathological state of society is implicit the notion that it can be other maybe maybe there is somehow buried deep down in it there is a rec- there is an understanding that um a thorough recognition of the of the state that we're in itself is the um the starting point is, is itself the building the first step towards a uh a, a systemic alteration a systemic change yeah and i think that's sort of um that's at least at a very early stage is kind of happening online right now that these sort of negative feelings are actually being connected to the wider issues of of how one lives one's life and how one uh, works and and the political condition that one has to live in um yeah i don't know <laughs> yeah we're not yeah we're not going to solve it are we no um <laughs> but no i think that's that's why i think um I, I mean, I don't know how to bring up Slavoj Žižek on this podcast because he's well, he's Žižek, but I, that's why I think there is something somewhat irresponsible in his fatalism. You know, so, like one of the phrases he very much enjoys trotting out is that we have to recognise that the light at the end of a tunnel of the tunnel is the oncoming train. Mm. I and again, I think he's making the same mistake as the metaphysical pessimists of the assumption that there isn't a way out well for Zizek although he does believe at least nominally he does believe that ultimately there is a way out there is historical progress which he does which he has said he does believe is a real thing he does Mm. believe that progress occurs but I think um although I understand what he's saying there that we shouldn't pin our we shouldn't be too quick to pin our hopes on one particular movement or individual which has often been the case which has often been the cause of a lot of the left's uh, trouble and traumas of assuming that this particular person of this particular moment is the game changer but it turning out not to be they're just forcing us further into um a state of sclerosis almost but um mm. the way that i think he does it by insisting on this that we have to be completely pessimistic about our situation implies um the opposite of what we've been saying implies the impossibility of change it implies that uh, this isn't something that we can do anything about when it is just a simple fact that 
there are right now, even within the frameworks of liberal capitalism, there are substantial changes that could be made without altering the fundamental relations of production that would make lives enormously easier. Just um, in, just in stuff like introducing rent controls in uh, in, mm-hmm. uh, in London would just make uh, the uh, many uh, people's lives substantially easier and would relieve an enormous contingent burden that's been rested upon us. And we wouldn't even we wouldn't even need to dismantle capitalism to do something like this. Mm-hmm. Or in um, or I mean. Yeah, you know, in the UK, at least we still haven't quite gotten rid of universal healthcare. But there is something so um, strange for uh, for me, at least, and I'm sure for a lot of people, seeing the situation in America, where this is treated, where this is universal healthcare is an institution that can exist very comfortably within the context of a capitalist economy, but it's being treated as um, mm-hmm. uh, as you know as, as on par with uh, the collectivization of the farms. It's um, and again, and perhaps this is the reason why. Perhaps the reason why uh, capital can't or has become much more, much less um, willing to make these changes than it was before was because it's real. It realised that if it does start to make these alterations, people will start to realise that more things can be altered than uh, have been so far. Yeah, I mean, obviously, part of that is just that there's a the sort of labour movement that we used to have in in the twentieth century has been dampened and and it's it's i guess it's sort of you know a matter of presentism that probably philosophers in in any time period have always had to had to sort of deal with these with this feeling that what one is currently feeling is actually something eternal and um and, and today obviously we have a lot of reasons to 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 sort of fall into despair you have uh, climate change you have increasing automation which is leading to unemployment uh you have you know continuing sort of military intervention of course venezuela is is a very active topic right now we have all of these reasons to to feel despair and it's I think, of course, you know, some sort of amount of despair is going to be left over in any political system, but it's it's important not to sort of try to assume that what you're feeling right now is something eternal, um, you know, as, as the sort of phrase that Mark Fisher has used is all of this is temporary, um, that, that there are political solutions that can actually alleviate so many of of these causes of of our despair yes and i think really one of the most um simple steps that um anyone can take really is uh just to increase their um not even their philosophical but just the historical literacy mm-hmm. of just developing a deeper understanding of not only how it is that we've got here but of the fact that every single step of the way towards the present situation has been met with um, resistance and struggle and and in many places victories have been were won even if these were victories that were later lost mm-hmm. and i think doing so i think i mean it does simultaneously um remind us that 
the struggle we have now is the struggle that we've kind of all, that we've had that we've always had. It's the same struggle that's existed towards the uh, the feudal lords, or in in a sense. Mm-hmm. But it's also through recognizing that is recognizing the fact that um, there's it's always been possible to to achieve other than what has happened and there have been many times when that ha- did happen when things were halted and pushed back again even if it was only temporarily but and this is something that um uh again we don't even have to look back too far now obviously i'm thinking of the british experience the fact that um just to steal the line from the podcast trash future but you know britain was more socialist when stalin was alive than it is now hmm. uh in that um things can things can be other because like i said all, all this is temporary all of these things can and we have to we always have to tell ourselves uh will eventually pass mm-hmm. yeah it's it's actually amazing how this sort of there's a kind of historical amnesia that is very actively cultivated there it's 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 very selective what we're led to forget so for example in the u.s right now you have people telling you that uh things like universal health care or an expanded expanded you know welfare system is completely impossible when those kinds of that kind of you know welfare was was massive in you know for example the U.S. under Roosevelt, um, and and I, I completely agree that that part of the solution is you know fighting against that dehistorization and that a ahistoricity that is is very actively uh, cultivated among us. Yes, this is. Um in her book, Caliban and the Witch, uh, Sylvia Federici precisely begins it by saying, I've written this book to teach people, uh, you know, the young people, uh, about the struggles that came before the ones they're in, uh, we're in now, uh, precisely because this is something that we are led to forget, mm-hmm. uh, but we, uh, that is kept out of, that is uh, kept out of our memory. And um, this isn't, to take a conspiratorial angle on it, obviously. I mean, I, mean, I, I sometimes think that's that, that's the fundamental difference between leftist and rightist mm-hmm. anti-capitalist discourses. That um, the left correctly and accurately sees things structurally, while the right sees things conspiratorially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these things, there are not. I mean, these aren't the products of a. Um, although they was, but they kind of are the products of certain sort of special interest groups that do mm-hmm. objectively exist in society. Mm-hmm. Um, but these problems, but the uh, the issue isn't fundamentally isn't um, uh, those groups of people. Uh, it's it's the syst- it's the system being structured in such a way that it can allow such a group such groups to have that kind of control. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because the the thing is that. Um even if certain groups of people, you know, benefit from the current system and perpetuate it, if they suddenly disappeared so long as the same system remained in place, then they would simply be replaced by another group of people. And, and I agree that that's sort of the, one of the major differences between left-wing critique and, and, uh, and right-wing critique, that it's, it's very futile to moralize and, and target specific individuals when, when there's a system actively, you know, leading individuals to act this way and 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 uh, and putting in place interests 
that individuals follow and, and, and thus, you know, behave this way. Yes, absolutely. And uh, this, uh, this doesn't just apply to the, um, the right-wing critique. This is um, the, the liberal critique as well. Mm -hmm. the, um, the liberal view is, or it, um, is identical in that regard. The notion that um, things are basically fine, we just need to make sure the right people are in charge. Mm -hmm. And uh, with various disagreements about who the right people are. Yeah. Which is why, uh, which is why you know, precisely the thing to not be happy about is the fact that there are more uh, w women billionaires, and um, you know that um, a, an openly gay man runs Apple. These aren't the things that we should be particular. These aren't the things that we should be happy about. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yes. So, so I'm just rearranging the blanket that I have to throw over myself to act as a sound tent when I'm recording from home. <laughs> um, it gets very, very warm. It's very uncomfortable. Um, but yeah, I think yeah, that. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that. Um, uh, I think I think sort of uh, perhaps running uh, towards the natural sort of like conclusion of this conversation. But I do kind mm -hmm. of just sort of like want to uh, bring us back a little bit and just sort of confirm. Just I just always just kind of want to say, Joy Division, really good band though, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like. I, I actually discovered them exactly at the, that uh, sort of age that you mentioned, sort of 16, 17. Um, it was sort of that time that you, in a way, start moving into adulthood and you ha have these uh, waves of negative emotions. It's, it's one of those bands that uh, accompany you during that time, I guess. Yeah, and it's in, and it's uh, it's of course striking that um, you know the boys enjoyed the vision themselves were more or less that that age that that was exactly mm -hmm. what uh, what they were working through though um, though sort of perhaps most specifically Curtis because the other band members have to, like varying degrees have stated that they didn't quite realise almost what kind of a project they were actually involved in because it was um, Curtis who did. Although it was Curtis who was you know, reading uh, to, uh, Elliot and, Bar and Ballard and Burroughs mm -hmm. and really uh, channeling that kind of en uh, channeling that uh, outlook. Um, while, although sort of like obviously extremely competent musicians in their own right, you know, go on to make uh, a, a New Order, who one of the sort of like most uh, one of the best, you know, up there with Joy Division in terms of, of like um, the act you know, is the best uh, cultural things to have come out of uh, the UK since seventy um, nine or whatever. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think perhaps one kind of final sort of like Fisherite point to make is the fact that um that you know when's the when is the next joy division going to arrive you know a band which isn't just a repetition uh of what they were about but um a similar a similarly epochal um cultural uh, expression because obviously something that he writes about a lot in uh, in, in, Ghost, in Capitalist Realism and Ghosts of My Life, and just was a, it was a very common theme in his work, was the cultural stagnation of neoliberalism as almost being one of its absolute worst qualities. You know, mm -hmm. He has that, he, he would tell that anecdote about how um, the first time he heard some of the Arctic Monkeys, he genuinely thought this was uh, a vintage 80s record he'd just <laughs> not heard before. Yeah. And um, yeah, because a lot of things after Joy Division try and sound like that because they did because they were this um they did just create a just like a whole new way of doing this kind of so like again uh, music but on the one hand it is yeah it does have all, it does have the punk ethos but it has um 
more of an emphasis for musicianship than existed in in, in most of punk. Um, there mm-hmm. were bands like um, uh, Crass comes to mind in terms of sort of a, a punk band that again was extremely cerebral. Um, was extremely uh, was often extremely inventive with what they were doing and weren't afraid of using um, uh, electronics and so on at points to uh, mm-hmm. sort of like add to what was happening. But um, but it certainly doesn't feel like there's anything going on at the moment that's kind of like Joy Division. Mm-hmm. Maybe I want to, though I, though I think I might say the Fat White Family, uh, just in terms of bands that have seem to have a similar kind of th- finger on the pulse. Uh, along with sort of like extremely chaotic personal lives, uh, who, uh, who are actually playing Brighton style while we record, coincidentally. But um, yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's uh, just kind of what I want to say. Joy Division, cracking band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, th- often there's people who say that what Joy Division did was often exaggerated, and um, and they were actually just, you know, a bunch of sort of young guys just having a laugh and having fun. And I guess one of the sort of significant points of, of this essay by Mark Fisher is that, you know, if it's true that these were just a bunch of sort of young guys just having fun, then the fact that they produced something as dark as Joy Division actually sort of says something about this sort of, you know, young male culture, which, uh, you know, Mark Fisher also connects it to the rising levels of mental illness and, and um, suicide. And I guess that's, yeah, that kind of um, outlet that Joy Division provided doesn't really uh, exist today, at least not in any um, uh, mainstream new bands as far as i know it's um interesting as well that uh although this isn't something that i can speak with any particular authority about that um politically joy division did tend more in their aesthetics to lean towards um fascism Mm -hmm. and i i may be misremembering this and i don't know exactly what the source of this is but i have i'm certain that i have read that um peter hook has said that um but over at the time they said they were just being shocking. I think Peter Hook has subsequently said that we were actually kind of interested in something like this, in the kind, in, in a kind of fascism. Mm-hmm. I think Curtis's own politics was were, um, was similarly sort of like odd, sort of like more oddly conservative than you would think. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is, maybe this goes all the way back to um, what we were saying about Schopenhauer that um, a metaphysically pessimistic outlook where there is no possibility. Of, of 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 um, long-lasting reform or change, in it sort of almost inherently means that you have to therefore become a very very bleak right winger and a very almost a very vicious right winger. Yeah, yeah, and perhaps that's why you know they did this so well, as Mark Fisher describes it, as sort of like stripping away the libidinal motor of rock music, and that there was no in the in the sadness of their music there was seemingly no apparent cause for you know all the darkness um and and that sense that actually this it that this despair isn't caused by any specific thing but is actually just the sort of state that we have to live in is 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 very often connected to 
right-wing policies. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's um, is a, a curious feature of um, Unknown Pleasures, at least. Sorry, I'm once again rearranging my sound tent. Uh, another uh, a feature of um, Unknown Pleasures is the fact that the band were actually kind of unhappy with how that album sounded because, mm-hmm. precisely because of all the good things about it, that it's so cold, it's so um, quiet, really, that it is full of these... Um, sort of oral empty spaces where you just have just sort of like the decaying noise of um of the city around them mm-hmm. and that was and that was a, a result of the production of uh, peter ha- of uh, martin hannett's uh, production and i think that i think they changed that i think the band did like come to realize that actually no this did this was good yeah but precisely the complaint they had about it was that um it, it subtracted the energy of their live performances mm-hmm. and perhaps the um if there was a, like a moral to take from that, it is perhaps just a sort of like recognition that uh, cultural forms, uh, cultural products, are products like anything else, and they are ultimately collective efforts. That they aren't, although it's very tempting, um, especially with Ian Curtis because of his suicide, to place him uh, uh, as this um, single so- to understand him as this single solitary genius figure who was the one that figured it all out. Mm-hmm. This does. Um, this is ultimately sort of like state. This is almost sort of like lapsing into you know sort of like the the heroic Nietzschean vision sort of you know of the of the great of the great man, and it is almost always a man who can sort of yeah. like tell the truth of these things, rather than recognizing that sort of this is a product like anything else that exists. Uh, it exists in a social context, in the context of there being these different relations of production, bringing it forwards, and these are things that maybe that not necessarily. All the participants of that are, uh, can quite realise that um, they aren't just producing these things on their own. That they that they are coming f- they are coming forward collectively in a sense, as indeed everything does. Yeah, yeah. And Mark Fisher talks about how both the the production of Hannet, but also the uh, the very depersonalised album covers, um, really made them into not so much an sort of an aggregate of individual musicians but more of a a conceptual unity um i guess that's also one of the significant things about joy division Mm. well uh i think i've reached the end of uh, what i wanted to uh cover mm-hmm. in uh in this interview was there anything uh that you wanted to uh, bring up or any uh any particular interesting uh uh projects or videos you're working on that uh, you might like to, that people might want to uh, keep an eye out for um uh, not really i guess i've i've just finished editing a new video on on cyberpunk which probably to listeners of this podcast should be interesting um it may be already out by the time this the, this podcast episode comes out i'm i'm uh probably going to release it on maybe the 4th of may or so um yeah that's yeah. probably it yeah so uh, i guess it kind of all depends on how fi- uh, how efficient uh, lucy and i would get to get uh, edited and uploaded yeah um but yeah um so if by some miracle this comes out before then uh keep an eye out for that uh, video and if not go back and watch it because it will be good uh because the stuff because the stuff you do is really good and interesting thanks uh right so um well hopefully 
we will at some point later this year we'll be able to get you uh, on for one of, uh, for, you know, to guest as a, one of our main episodes we're going to be talking about a movie mm-hmm. and uh, again just uh, one last time I'd just like to thank you for uh, coming on board and uh, uh, I think I, I think you said you've listened to the podcast and we do have a, mm-hmm. a, a let's, we do have our little sign off uh, so if you would uh, <laughs> when I say keep it weird if you can stay if you could say stay signal that'd be awesome so okay uh, until next time uh, keep it weird sorry uh, what is it I have to say again <laughs> and stay signal okay let's do it again and until next time keep it weird and stay signal thank you very much thank you thanks you